But before we start today, I would love to pray and then we'll jump into it. Lord, I just thank you for today. I thank you for this morning. I thank you that your spirit is here, speaking to us, leading us, guiding us. Lord, I pray that you would open up all of our hearts today to receive whatever it is you would have for us today, Lord God. Lord, that today's message may help us reconcile something in the past so we have peace that may give us the keys to unlocking uh, an issue we're facing today or it might be something we just have to uh, reserve in the future for a time where we need to draw upon it. But I just thank you that today your spirit will be at work depositing truth into all of our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 18. We go old school, way back to the OT. Um. So this chapter un- un- unveils a story where some of you might be familiar with the story, other of you may not. Uh, but in Genesis chapter 18, um, God and Abraham have an interesting conversation. It's almost like they have a, a negotiation. God reveals his plan to Abraham that he's going to decimate the city of Sodom. Now, Sodom was, most of you know, like, you know, the connotations of, of the word Sodom, where that comes from. And and the city of Sodom in these times was just a completely debauched, unhinged cesspool of human depravity. Um, whatever human pleasure people were interested in, they would just indulge in that with no rhyme, rule or reason. And the whole place was just, just completely toxic and godless. And so much so, the Bible describes that their sin and their debauched lifestyles was almost like an aroma that got in God's nostrils. That God had caught a sense of their their evilness and their wickedness and was like, hmm, that Sodom place, I know what I need to do. Wipe them out, start again. And so he's having this conversation with Abraham going, I'm going to do this, it's going to happen. And Abraham starts to have this conversation with God going, oh, but God, surely if there's 50 people that are righteous in the city, you're not going to wipe the whole city out. And God was like, well, fair point. That's probably not fair for those 50 who are doing the right thing. Um, all right, for 50, I won't wipe out the whole city. And so Abraham goes, okay, I've got him here. What about, what about, what about 40? Um, 40? Oh, all right, yeah, if, if there's 40 righteous people, then I won't wipe out the city. What about 30? Sure, 20? Why not? 10? Oh, now you're pushing it. And so Abraham negotiates God down to if there's 10 righteous people found in Sodom, he'll save it and won't wipe it out. Then we jump into chapter 19. Clearly, God hasn't found 10 people in the city who are righteous because he starts to um, press the go button on this decimation of Sodom plan. And so he sends two men, angelic beings, they're sort of angels, men, whatever, into the city. And, and Lot was there. Lot is a righteous man. He's a good dude. He's a good, healthy household. He loves God. And so the... Lot sees these two angelic beings, these two men, and goes, oh, come and stay with me. I'll feed you. I'll look after you. I'll, I'll provide hospitality to you. And like, oh, no, no, no. We'll stay in the city. But he insists. He was very persuasive. So the two angelic beings, the two men, stay with uh, Lot in his home. And now this is where we get an insight into how incredibly debauched and evil the city of Sodom was. Word got around that there were these two foreigners in the city. And that piqued people's interest like oh a couple of foresters some fresh meat oh tasty let's go so they start to surround Lot's house um, men in their, their dozens or hundreds surround Lot's house banging on the door demanding that Lot release those two men because all these other blokes wanted to make love to them it's in the Bible just like 
cool, fresh meat, let's do this. And Lot's trying to negotiate, no, 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 no. And eventually the, 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 the two men inside the house grab Lot, drag him in, shut the door, and then blast blindness over all the men outside the house. And then they start to unveil the plan. Look, actually, we're here to destroy Sodom like God had promised, so um, get your wife, get your daughters, and get the heck out of here. In fact, he says like this. He says, uh, the, the angels gave them strict instructions in Genesis 19, 17. Flee for your lives. Don't look back. Don't stop. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. So Lot and his wife did exactly that. They fled for the mountains. And the Lord began to rain fire and sulfur upon Sodom and the neighboring city of Gomorrah. And it was absolute devastation and destruction. The wrath of God was poured out on all unrighteousness. That sounds familiar. In that city. It was like something from, you would see in an Armageddon movie. It was just crazy. In the midst of the chaos and destruction, the flashes of light, the, the claps of thunder, the, the smoke billowing from the city as it burned to the ground, Lot's wife did what she was instructed not to do. She turned back to look at the city that she'd once loved, the city that was home, the city that she had known for so long. And in that moment of looking back, she turned to a pillar of salt and literally her life crumbled away. Now this is an interesting story. And uh, you may have never given much attention to this story. Maybe you're aware of this story. Maybe you've never heard this story before. But it's fascinating you might think it's folklore or whatever, but what I find interesting is that this New Testament, uh, this, this story actually has New Testament context. Because sometimes we go, oh, Old Testament, they're the weird, freaky stories that we see in movies, and New Testament's all Jesus' love and lambs, that's all good, and we sort of disconnect it to. But, but the New Testament, Old Testament, uh, they flow into each other quite beautifully. And it, it is, believe it or not, the same God in both. So you might be asking the question, well, how does the New Testament and this story relate? Great question. Thanks for asking. In, in Luke 17, we see Jesus unpacking um, what the end times will be like. So he's revealing that, hey, I will come back again um, and, and starts to give signs of what the times will do, what they'll be like for his second coming. And we looked at this in, uh, in the series End Times about two or three months ago. So if you want to listen to what we talked about with that, go back and listen. It's, it's, a, it's a good message about the end times and what that means from a biblical perspective, not a superstitious perspective. So in Luke chapter 17, Jesus actually uses this example about the end times and what's going to happen. Uh, he uses the example of Lot. He says, you know, the people of Sodom were eating and drinking. They were buying, selling, they were planting, they were building. What he's actually saying is they were active in their everyday lives. They were active in their sin, ignoring God, doing whatever pleased them. They were just indulging their wickedness, going about their life. Then God suddenly rained down fire and sulfur on the city and completely destroyed it. And only Lot and his family escaped. Now, that was Jesus' example for the end time. So what was his takeaway point for that? Was his takeaway point, so when I come back, make sure you are living holy lives. 
Make sure you're not like the wicked people of Sodom where my, when, when God's wrath is, and judgment is poured out on the unrighteous, make sure that you are living righteous and holy lives. Well, that's, that's a no-brainer. Jesus is pretty clear about living holy lives, but that was not his main point. His main takeaway from the story of, of, of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his wife was not for us to live holy lives that are pleasing to God. The main point was remember Lot's wife. When the world starts to come to an end, when things get darker, remember Lot's wife. As things get darker, we're getting to the closer, the closer we get to when God will come back, pour his wrath on the unrighteous and redeem those who are in his family. Remember Lot's wife. He's saying, don't look back. Don't long for the things of this world to satisfy you. Don't long for the pleasures of this life that will actually destroy your resilience and not build it. You see, Jesus, like Lot and his family, he, he has taken us out of sin and death and has put us into a place of life and eternity with him. And in this life that we have with him as sons and daughters of God, he's coming back one day to redeem us. And as the, light, as, the, as, the, as the world gets darker, as we've said, as, as things just get really tumultuous, as, as we get tempted with having divided hearts and divided allegiance to things of this world and the pleasures of the flesh, Jesus is saying, just remember Lot's wife. She was instructed not to look back. Because as soon as we look back to the way things were, that's when we start to crumble with what we have now. And this is human nature, Right? I think another Old Testament story is the whole tribe of Israel who were for 430 years enslaved to the Egyptians. And then the story goes and we know that, that Moses saved them out with the, the negotiations with Pharaoh and whatever. And then so all these people, the whole tribe of Israel, the whole nation of Israel set free from generational slavery into, uh, on the path to the promised land. And guess what they did for the most of it? whinge and complain and wish they were back in slavery. They kept looking back. If only we had, if only. And so, so we see this as human nature, it's just to look back. But Jesus said, hey, continue to look forward. Don't look to the old. And right after this passage in, in Luke 17, where Jesus is given the example of Lot's wife, the very next thing he says is, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will preserve it. And again, that's the picture we have here. We have to know that we have escaped the old life and its sinful nature and its sinful desires to embrace this new life. We have to lose that to gain this. But if we want to have that, we have to lose that. Jesus sets the example for us. He lost his life to be resurrected to brand new life again. Don't look back. Remember Lot's wife. No divided hearts. No divided allegiances. I want to read this quote from the book. He says, Throughout God's long, tempestuous, I love that word. We should use that far more in sentences. Throughout God's long, tempestuous love affair with the human race, recorded in both Old and New Testaments, the central dilemma has always been double mindedness, the lack of wholeheartedness. Jesus even said in Matthew 15, 8, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's the condition of humanity. Oh, we love Jesus. Well, our heart and our affection and our allegiance are actually other things. 
because they're the things we find comfort from, they're the things we like to enjoy, they're the things that bring us pleasure. But really, to love Jesus with an undivided heart is to sacrifice. And sometimes sacrifice, or most of the time, sacrifice is costly, like Hannah explained this morning so beautifully. It is costly, but the price is so worth paying because the reward is great. We are in such a vulnerable moment in human history. In order to become resilient, we must choose single-heartedness, where we desire Jesus above everything else, above our other lovers, above our false Edens, above our passing comforts that bring us temporal peace. Remember Lot's wife. We can't go back, especially at a time when God is moving things forward and he's calling us to come along with him. God is moving humanity, God is moving his church forward in anticipation for his recollection of us at his return. We have to remind ourselves to get on board with his forward moving momentum and not go back or wish we were back or turn back to the way things were for us. Hebrews 10.39 But we are not like those who turn away from God to their own destruction. We are the faithful ones whose souls will be saved. I want that to be our personal declaration of faith and determination. I want that to be the true north on the compass of our souls. That when we, when we look inward and we look to, to who we are as spiritual beings and we look to who we are as, as humans created in the image of God, I would love our mantra to be, we are not like those who turn away from God to destruction, but we are the faithful ones whose souls will be saved. We have an undividedness towards God. Love it. If you want to become a wholehearted person, you must reach the point where happily, lovingly, you give absolutely everything over to God. You make Jesus your everything, you're all in all. In order to preserve your life, you're going to have to lose it. You're going to have to give it up in order to gain what Jesus has for you. But the question is, are we willing to do that? Honestly. Are we going to sit here and go, that, that's a challenging, inspiring message. True, but are we going to actually, when we walk out here this afternoon, or we wake up tomorrow morning, are we going to actually put these things into practice? Are we willing to lose our life so that it will be preserved? challenging because when in finding the life God has for us we find the recovery and resilience that is available for us to live this life at the at the level that God has for his children and we're not going to find it in gain, in just holding on to the life we've already had and trying to figure it out in our own strength we need God so I'm going to close this morning the last few minutes with this um this little quote, this little summary from the last page of this chapter, page 206, for those who don't have the books and can't read along with me. It says this. We are so close, friends, guaranteed. There's no need to fear or grasp or look back. So what shall we do? We take the things in this book seriously. We arrange our lives to center around God so that we might take hold of the strength that prevails. We handle our recovery and resilience as seriously as any survivor would. Perhaps you need to return to chapter nine and finish writing your prescription with Jesus, which will become your plan forward. Then hold on to it. If there's someone you've been thinking about 
as you've read this book, make sure they have a copy too. And I'll just pause right there. That, that's exactly what I did. I read this book. And as I'm reading this book um, late last year, early this year, guess who came into my mind? All of your faces were printed off Facebook and put on the seats this, on Monday. I was thinking about you guys. I was thinking about our church going, I want to get this in the heads and hearts and hands of our church. And so that's why I ordered a bunch of copies. That's why we put this aside. So if you're not prepared to read it, I don't care. I'll still preach it for 10 weeks so that you get it one way or another. Because there's so much in this that is super helpful for us. So, um, John, if you're listening, I, I did what you said in the book and I make sure everyone got a copy of that. So thank you. He listens to my messages a lot. He's, he's, he's really good. He sends me critiques via email. We remember Lot's wife, as our Lord commanded us to. Every time our hearts are tempted to look back, we redouble our love for Jesus, knowing that strong, dark currents are trying to pull us away. We take hold of the supernatural graces. We give everything for his everything, diving deep in our inmost being to find the God who gives us resilience. His resilience will not fail us. Soon we will be laughing and singing with healed hearts as we walk with Jesus in a completely healed world. That's the hope that we have. And so as I bring this series to a close, I just, I just want to remind us that what we're not talking about is, is self-help, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, just getting on with it, being more religious and do, 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 do. It's actually leaning into the strength we need for recovery, the strength we need for resilience, actually is a gift that God gives us. He gives us his strength in order for us to, to have the supernatural graces available to us to, to be more resilient. And here's the beauty thing, beautiful thing about God. God is triune in nature. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God in his nature is omnipresent he's he's able to unlike us be at multiple places at one time and so when we break that down we realize that God the Father is the sovereign Lord who sits as authority over all creation and we have access to God the Father we intercede through Jesus and we Jesus is our mediator we have connection to the sovereign God of this our heavenly father He's with us. We have access. And then the second part of the Trinity is, is the Son, which is Jesus. And, and Jesus promises us. He's like, our, he's like our best friend. He's our Lord, our Savior, our best friend. No greater love than this, than, than a friend, uh, than someone's willing to lay down his life for a friend. And Jesus did that for us. He's our big brother. He's our best friend. And he promised in Matthew 28, 20, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. So we have Jesus with us as well. We have God in sovereign control. We have Jesus with us. And we also have the third part of the Trinity, which is the Holy Spirit, who actually dwells inside of us in our inmost being. And the Bible is pretty clear on the fact that the, that the Holy Spirit now dwells in us. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. It's no longer contained, He's no longer contained in, in tabernacles and temples made of stone and made of gold, but He has made, he's made His residence in our hearts as God's image bearers. When we get that revelation of God the Father with us, drawing power and authority, 
Jesus, our big brother, our saviour, our best friend is right by us, he'll never leave us. And the Holy Spirit lives in the very core of our being that when we pray and we get past the, the shallows of our prayer life and into the midlands, into the deep depths of our inmost being, there we meet with God and there he shifts and corrects and encourages and changes and builds us. When we realise that God, the Trinity, is with us, then when we hear scriptures like, if God is for us, who can be against us? Doesn't that give you more confidence? Like God in his fullness is with you. And if he is with you and if he is for you and if he is in you, then what opposition should you possibly be afraid of? So we're not talking about doing stuff in our own strength, in our own willpower. We are talking about connecting with God's divinity in, in grace and love through what Jesus has accomplished for us and having access to all the strength we need to get through this life. But that starts with first laying down our life and surrendering in order to take up the new life God has for us that will be preserved in him. And when we do that, we don't look back like Lot's wife did, we look forward with our eyes look, planted heavenward where our help comes from, knowing that one day he will return and he will pour out the wrath of himself, God pour out his wrath on all unrighteousness and redeem everything unto himself. That is the gospel message. That is the hope we have. So I pray and I thank you for these last 10 weeks of those who bought the book, have been journeying on with the book, those who have come to hear on Sunday these messages. And I, I pray that it, it honestly is, is helpful for you and has brought a greater sense of God's presence in your world, of where you are at in God's plan for your life. And I pray that it would not just be a, a message that would go, that was pretty cool, I really like some of that stuff. But I hope that you would go away and just think, and go, what, is, what is my plan for resilience? What is, what is the prescription that I'm going to have to to live a more surrendered life to God? What do I need to take up? What do I need to stop doing? And how do I connect essentially more with God in my inmost being to be transformed in his likeness to go from glory to glory as he's called me to do? That's my heart. That's my prayer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today, the last 10 weeks, all the different um, people that have communicated these chapters of this book. I thank you for John Eldridge, Lord, and, and the heart and the head you've given him to communicate such beautiful truths to encourage us and help us. And Lord, I just thank you that you are with us in every season. Lord, in the good seasons, would you help us be humble? In the, in, in the bad seasons, would you help us to be dependent upon you and not look back to old patterns and old methods of soothing and comfort? But in all seasons, we would acknowledge you and follow you. Lord, I just thank you today that you are with us, that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. And Lord, I just pray for um, spiritual, emotional, and mental health, recovery, and resilience upon all of us here today, Lord God. That we would remember if you are for us, and you are, then who can be against us? Give us the confidence to live from that place, even when we don't feel like it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.